another wonderful event in the life of the church. Uh, as the church approved on uh, Wednesday night when we gathered for our members meeting, that we have uh, um, invited Cody Snyder uh, to begin April 1st to join us full time here on staff as a church planter in residence. And so you all should be very excited about that. Um, And it is our hope and prayer that in about 22 months, uh, Cody Snyder will be used by God to start a new church in Lovettsville, Virginia. And so we're excited that we can be part of that in our great aspiration to be a mother church, that God would use us to plant other churches. And I'm delighted that we are taking steps towards that. You're going to, of course, hear much more about that in the weeks and months to come. So we're thrilled for that. So here we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Hear now the word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our Father, we're thankful uh, for this time now in which we can sit uh, sit under your word, sit under your teaching. We believe, even as our brother John has already affirmed this morning, that this happens to be the very Word of God. And we believe, furthermore, that you want to teach us and speak to us through it. And so we pray, as we do often, like Samuel of old, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We come here with no agenda. We come in here with with no plan. We simply come because we want to hear from the one true God. And so we ask through your indwelling spirit, And by your very word, that you be kind and gracious to speak into our hearts, that you might conform us more into the image of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in in the year uh, 2012, uh, I happened to be in a village called Yenamalan on a tiny uh, Pacific uh, ocean island, out in the middle of the Pacific Island. It's a, it's a day I will never forget for the rest of my life. I was there um, in this little village, about 250 villagers, uh, and me. The, the missionaries had left. In fact, they had left the country and were not coming back. And uh, no, they did not forget me. I was to remain behind for a week and, and uh, to do some um, evangelism amongst uh, the villages throughout this island. And so I was left there with 250 uh, villagers there. And uh, by the way, these are, are some of the last people on earth to give up cannibalism. They gave it up in about the 1950s, the best that we understand. And I'm here in this village, and I'm surrounded by my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I, I remember uh, there sitting in a plastic chair with a cup of coffee in my hand, and up on this mountaintop on this little island, and, and about five miles in the horizon was an erupting volcano. And behind the volcano was the vast Pacific Ocean going on as far as the eye could see. My Bible in my lap, I read these words from the book of Isaiah. 
For, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. And I saw it before my very eyes. Sitting in the lushness of this jungle, and Isaiah says, just as the plants grow, just, just as the earth brings forth its sprouts, so righteousness and praise to God shall sprout in all nations. And I was thinking about the fact that those are words written 2,700 years ago by this this prophet in a tiny Middle Eastern country called Israel. And here, 2,700 years later, on this island that is 10 miles long by 20 miles wide, I'm sitting amongst the villagers, amongst righteous people, praising God. I'm reminded of that story when I read 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24, when Paul, Paul says, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the Word of God, that no matter how impossible something might seem, God will do what he says. And, and, and of course, here the context is not uh, the advance of the gospel to all nations, but here it's really the advance of the gospel within our lives. Or we might use the word, as Paul does there in verse 23, sanctification. Now, the last two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has been dealing with the Christian life. We might call it ethics. We might call it the law. And, and he has covered quite a bit of ground. He has talked to us about purity in our, in our relationships. He has talked to us about love, about how we go about our work. He's talked to us about death and grief and the resurrection and how to live as uh, children of the light and not children of the darkness. He's told us about Christ's return and Christ's death. He told us that all of life for us is none of it is wrath because we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus who has died for us. And, and he's gone on and on and on. And then in chapter 5, he begins to tell us, okay, this is how you relate to your leaders within the church. And then he tells us this is how you are to engage with one another in Christian fellowship. And we saw last time, he begins to tell us how we are to orient ourselves when we gather together for worship. In fact, if you just read, really starting in verse 12 through verse 28, you'll see command after command after command. In fact, in 11 verses, Paul gives 17 different commands. And if you read it, it's kind of overwhelming. It might be even a little discouraging. As you think, how am I possibly going to do that? How can I live in light of these truths? How is that possible? And I wonder if that's what's going on in Paul's mind as he ends this letter there, beginning in verse 23, writing, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you. Sanctification is the process by which you are made more and more like God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, a sanctified person bears not only God's name, but God's image. And so sanctification is, is different from the other great Christian theological word, justification. Right? So justification we read of in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what justification is, it is a legal declaration by God himself that you are not guilty. Not guilty. 
That's what just, to be justified means. God declares you not guilty. He gives you a legal standing or a positional standing. He does not change your behavior. This is not an altering of our character. We just simply stood before the judge accused, and the judge says to us, not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. That's what God has done for us all if we are in Christ in salvation. We were once accused before a holy God, accused because of our passive indifference, our active rebellion, our unbelief in him. We stood condemned before God because of the sin in our life. For the book of Romans says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rejected God. We've all sinned against him. We are all uh, uh, condemned as guilty men and women standing before a holy God. We might therefore ask, how can I be justified before him? How can I be declared? not guilty before this God. Some people think, well, the way you do that is you start attending church, right? You start doing good works. I'm going to obey the speed limit and pay my taxes and all the rest, right? That's how I get justified. I'm going to start doing good things. My question for you is, will that change your legal standing? I ask sometimes people, if you committed murder and then you went and saved 10 people's lives, does that change your legal standing? Does that change the fact that you still are a murderer? It does not. No good works will will cover what you have done. See, the option the Bible presents to us is how we can be justified before a holy God is not by good works. It is not by fixing our life. It is simply, remember Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by, what is it? Faith. Faith. We trust in him. So you don't have to become righteous in order to be declared not guilty by God. You simply have to put your faith in the work of Christ. In fact, you have to admit that you're not righteous. As the publican long ago prayed, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust in Christ and his work on the cross on my behalf, his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, God, if you put your faith in him, in, in Christ and his work, God declares you not guilty. That's justification. But here's the rub. You're not changed at all. You're still the same person. You still have the sin in you for which you were accused. And now what happens in the Christian's life is you want to become what you have been declared. You want to be, live a life of no guilt. You want to live a life of righteousness. The Bible calls that process sanctification. So you might think of justification this way. Justification is external. It's something that's been declared about you. Sanctification is internal. Something is happening within you, who you are, within your character. Justification is instantaneous, right? It it happens uh, in one moment and you're justified. You can't be a little bit justified, right? You can't say, "I'm I'm a little bit more justified today than I was yesterday, No, it's instantaneous. You're either justified or you're not. And when God justifies you, he does it, and it is perfect and complete. You are fully justified. So justification is instantaneous. Sanctification is a process. I like the illustration that Alistair Begg sometimes uses of of the queen when she buys a, a residence. Perhaps you've heard him say this if you listen to his sermons. 
Right, when the, I don't know if she needs more residences, I guess she does, but so every once in a while she finds an estate that she likes, and so she goes out and she buys, buys the estate. Okay? And now, it, it, now it, is, it belongs to her, right? Uh, this is a, a, a legal change. It legally now is hers. It is an instantaneous change. As soon as the money is changed hands or the paperwork signed, instantaneously, that, that estate, which was not hers, is now legally and instantly hers. But then she begins to send her servants in to renovate the place, to make it fit for her majesty. Right? And that is an internal process that's happening within the estate. It's ongoing. It's something that's going on inside. Well, my Christian brothers and sisters, you are now the residents of God if you have been justified. Isn't that amazing? God takes up his residence within you, even though you are a dirty old house. Okay, it's kind of drafty in that house, missing some shingles, right? Okay, yeah, and there are gods living in there. And, and, and so what happens? You say, the king's going to live here? Yeah, he is. But he plans to renovate this place. He plans to make it fit for his majesty. That's sanctification. That's what's happening to you if you are in Christ. And so I tell you this morning, the point of your salvation is not just your legal declaration of not guilty, but it is sanctification too. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is it? Your sanctification. It's right there. That's God's will. Remember Jesus gives the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to come to church on Sunday mornings. Teaching them to know everything I've commanded. No, that's not what he says. You teach them, what? To observe, to obey all that I have commanded. There is an obedience component to our Christian life. That's sanctification. Christ says, go make disciples that they might be sanctified. And so we end here in 1 Thessalonians with this beautiful theology of sanctification. We see that we are sanctified completely, sanctified sovereignly, sanctified mutually, and sanctified graciously. I will let you know that those four points I'm taking from uh, a pastor named Richard Phillips down in South Carolina, and so those are his points. I want to give him credit. The content will be mine, um, but I thought he did a masterful job breaking this passage down, and so I trust that will be helpful for us as we see, first of all, that we are sanctified completely. For what does Paul say there in verse 23? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, completely. Right now, Christian, you're only partially sanctified. Right? You are a work in progress. Okay? The, the, the renovation continues. The scaffolding is still up. And, 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 and God is working in your life, making you more and more holy. And he intends to complete the project. He will sanctify you completely. It reminds me of that famous passage in Philippians 1 in verse 6 that you are well aware of, I'm sure. And I am sure of this, Paul says. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. On the day of Christ Jesus, he will complete. God does not start something that he does not finish. And therefore, he is very unlike you and me. Right? You ever start something you don't finish? That's like my spiritual gift. Right? <laughs> beginning projects. I am great at beginning projects. Strong start. Not so good at bringing them to completion. And as you know, I've been working on this treehouse out back and it is glorious, and it is magnificent, and it is enormous, and it is unfinished. Okay? 
And it just stands there as this massive monument to ambitious folly, and it mocks me, you know, uh, continually. Why would you even start a project like this, right? I, I don't know if I'm the only one. Any, any women living in homes with about five or six half-started projects, right? Any half-read books on your shelf? Any half-completed diets, right? Uh-oh, right? right? We, we start things, don't we? We're good at starting things. We're not so good at finishing things. Aren't you glad you didn't start your sanctification? Because you would have good cause to worry whether it's going to be complete. But he who began a good work in you, he he will bring it to completion. So our confidence in the completion of our sanctification depends totally on God's faithfulness and not our own. God will complete what he has begun. He will, as Paul says here, sanctify you completely. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, don't ever think he stopped working in your life. Or you think, maybe even now you come in here and think, nothing's being done. I'm just, I'm the same old person I was last year, and I was the same old person I was five years ago, and, and, and nothing's being done. I'm telling you, by the very word of God, if you are in Christ, he will never stop working in your life. He will never let anything stand in his way of finishing his work in you. God will sanctify you completely. In fact, I think he elaborates as he goes on in verse 23 and he says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Your spirit and soul and body, in other words, all of us. There's no part of us that will be left unsanctified. will be made holy through and through. In fact, I think it's an interesting note that he adds bodies there. That there's going to be a sanctification to our bodies. That your bodies matter to God. We don't simply have a body, as some people suggest. Our bodies are not simply our appendages. We are bodies. As the theologians would say, we are a psychosomatic union. We are a union of body and soul. We're not meant to be angels. We're not meant to be bodiless spirits. And one day, according to Christ... We will have both a perfect soul, perfect spirit, and a, and a perfect body, our bodies. In fact, right, even right now, we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. It's our bodies that we use to enjoy our relationships and, and God's get good gifts. And so beware of the dualism that's, that's kicking around in, in Western Christianity that says all, the, all this is the spirit's important. The body doesn't matter. No, he says he's going to sanctify your body. And I don't know about you, but my body could use a little sanctification. I turned 45 last month, and almost instantaneously, I can no longer read my Bible. It was just so small. I don't know how it got so small and fuzzy. Um, but I, you experience anything like that, one day he's going to, t- to, to transform us. I think that means we care for our bodies right now. I don't think our bodies are unimportant in our relationship with God. Our bodies are given to us that we might serve one another, and we might use them in worship of God. And yet we want to avoid the other extreme where we fixate totally on the body and not on the soul. For Paul says physical training has some value, but godliness has value for all things. And as we know, our bodies will continue to grow weak. Hopefully our spirits will continue to grow strong. And then one day, he'll perfect them both. All of us, completely. When? Well, he tells us there, doesn't he? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul, uh, John will put it, he says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so this is the great promise, this completion of our sanctification. Sometimes it is called in the Bible, our glorification, our future glorification, and that day your body is just going to be perfect. What does that mean? No more pain, no more sickness, no more weakness, no more memory loss, 
No more runny eyes and broken noses and chemotherapy and prescriptions and needles and hospitals. That's a day to look forward to, isn't it? No, no, what, what about the rest of you? No more guilt or bitterness in your heart? That'd be gone forever? No more greed or covetousness in your soul? No more rage or selfless thought in your mind? Never an unkind word or a boastful comment in your mouth? No more envy or hatred or lust or laziness or frustration? Never again. No, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more anger, no more uncertainty. You'll never be distracted in worship ever again. You'll never be bored by truth ever again. You'll never be tempted by evil ever again. You'll never sin again. You will be complete in Christ, and you will be filled with love and joy and peace. You'll be filled with kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That, Christian brothers and sisters, is your destiny. You will not simply live forever. You will be completed. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, your whole body and soul and spirit, blameless before our coming king. And on that day, we will stand before him in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You might say, can this be true? We'll consider the promise of verse 24 as we realize God will sanctify us sovereignly. Secondly, he will sanctify us sovereignly for for Paul would write in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. See, the God to whom Paul prays is not passive or weak or unfaithful. He will do it. What's the it? What's the very thing Paul is praying for? very thing Paul has been commanding, really from the start of chapter 4, their sanctification. He will do it. You notice verse 23, it's emphatic, the God of peace himself, right? He's hammering that that home. God is going to do that. And so you might say, how can I be sure I'll advance in my Christian life? How can I be certain I'm going to grow in holiness? Well, I'll tell you how you can be sure, because God, the God who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. You might ask, what, what is it about the faithfulness of God that commits him to sanctify us? And why, why, why does he link the, the reality that he will do it to God's faithfulness? Well, notice very clearly what he says there in verse 24. He who does what? He who calls you is faithful. So he is faithful to his call, right? Pa- Paul knows about God's call. Paul experienced it pretty powerfully there on the road to Damascus, didn't he, when God irresistibly called him to himself. And though our experience may not be so grand, in fact, it's not as grand as Paul's. Nevertheless, if you are in Christ, he has called you. For the book of Romans says that, that those he called, he justified. We all have been called. And Paul says, hey, I want, guys, I want you to listen to this. I want you to understand this, that he who called, he called you, and if he called you, then you can be certain that he is going to sanctify you because he has called you to holiness. That's why you've been called. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, we've already seen some weeks ago, God has not called us, there's that word again, for impurity, but in holiness. So in other words, to put it negatively, if God did not sanctify you, then he would be unfaithful to the purpose of his call. And I'm telling you, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. In fact, it's not just why he called you, it's why he chose you. 
The Bible says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he choose me? That I might be sanctified. Is why he predestined you. Romans 8 and verse 29, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. It's why Jesus died for you. Ephesians 5 and verse 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So we could say, as Paul does, he who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. But we could add to that, he who chose you is faithful, he will surely do it. And he who predestined you is faithful, he will surely do it. And he who died for you is faithful, he will surely do it. In other words, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your sanctification is rooted and grounded in the great and eternal plan of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now somebody came up on the fly. This is the plan from the very beginning, and will he keep his plan? Well, yes, he will, because he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. God keeps his promises, and I think he's doing it to you, in you, and through you right now. He is. He wants to do it through us as we live. How does he do it in us? Through our obedience. Now, here's the key. Here's where we get hung up, because we say, well, if God's going to do it, I therefore must be passive. I have no role. But no, that's not the case at all, right? He's actually going to sanctify you, make you more holy, make you more Christ-like as you obey him. I mean, what's Paul been doing since the beginning of chapter 4? He's been commanding, do this, don't do this, be holy, be loving, you know, uh, uh, rejoice in your grief. And all, all he's been telling us how to live, rejoice always, you know, pray in all circumstances, be thankful, right? And he's been, he's been telling us how it is we are to live. And so we do these things so that as we do them, God sanctifies us. You have a role in this. So in justification, you have no role. Okay? He doesn't look at you in your sin and say, wow, you're pretty impressive. You know, I want you on my team. Okay? You'll be justified. No, you have no role. He looks at us dead in our sin and out of grace and mercy, he justifies us. But in sanctification, he comes and says, do this, avoid that, be like this. He, in other words, he sanctifies us by commanding us. So it, it's not God sanctifies so there are no commands. No, he sanctifies through your obedience and your labor. And therefore, my brothers and sisters, you have to work at this. Right? You need to obey if you're going to grow in godliness. This is what Paul said in the book of Philippians, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for, right? There's our labor for, oh, now I've totally lost it. Someone help me. Oh, for, Cody, help me out here. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to do. Thanks a lot, buddy. Um, right? Okay. 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 Uh, so we work out our salvation, right? Okay. And, and, but, but it's God who's working in us. Okay. So we, we have this role to do. Right? Are you laboring? Are you laboring for godliness? Because I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to just turn on the TV than it is to pray with the kids, isn't it? Yeah. Amen to that, I'll say. It's a lot easier to sleep in than get up and memorize scripture. Isn't it? We have work to do. You don't sit back and say, okay, God, take care of it. God says, I will take care of it, but I'm going to take care of it through you. You're going to work through my sovereign power. It's kind of like, uh, I, I like the example of when you taught your kids to ride a bike. You remember you did that? And the kid there on the bike, and the kids, you know, the kid has to balance, and the kid has to pedal, and the kid has to steer, right? There's work for, for the kid to do. But where's your hand the whole time? Right? It's right under the seat, isn't it? Right? Why? So they will not fall. 
And you say, Daddy's got you. You're not going to fall. Now pedal. Now balance. Now steer. Now work. Now go. And they wobble, don't they? And they, they start and stop. But they don't fall because you have them. Right? God is faithful. When you wobble, his sovereign hand is on you. And so what we can have, just like we're trying to put into our kids, we can have confidence, right? That we can, we can I'm going to press on towards the goal for which I've been called heavenward in Christ Jesus with confidence that God has me, that God has his hand on me. Because it's easy to be discouraged and it's, and it's easy to despair about some unrelenting sin in your life. I feel the weight of sin. I understand that. I trust you do. I know what it's like uh, to, to cry out in repentance. I know what it's like to be filled with sorrow over my sin. And those sins should not be minimized. Certainly not. But certainly shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed, as they do in some people's life, to overshadow the truth of God's word. His promise to you that you or I or the devil himself will not stop God's plan to complete you. There is no trial. There is no trouble. There is no difficulty, danger, no sin where God says, I've had it with you. You're on your own. Every moment of the day, he says, I'm not taking my hand off you. I got you. He's always there. He's always with you so that you will not fall. There's such power in realizing that and living in light of it. I love the story in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful were walking along the way on the, on the narrow road, and they, they wander off into Bypath Meadow. And there the giant despair lays hold of them and, and captures them, and, and he beats them and, and uh, abuses them, and he throws them into the dungeon of you know, Doubting, Doubting Castle down there in the dungeon, and uh, they lose hope. In fact, they, 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 they've made such a disaster of their journey, such a, made, made such awful decision getting off the narrow road, that they feel there's no hope. They're defeated. In fact, they even begin to contemplate taking their own lives. And then, it, then, it, then the realization comes to Christian. Remember the part of that story? He realizes he has the key to Doubting Castle all the time in his chest pocket. Remember what the key was called? The key called promise. In fact, the key opens any bonds that would ever bind us. You have that key, Christian brothers and sisters. It's verse 24 and many, many other places in Scripture. The very promises of God. That's your key. And when you feel defeated, when you feel overwhelmed, you have a key. And the key is here. You cling to verse 24, that my God is faithful. He has called me, and he is faithful. He will surely do it. Your key is not to stand on your faithfulness, but on his. And, and, and though you hate the sin that besieges your soul, what you do is you take your sin to the cross. For what is the cross but, but proof to us that no sin will ever frustrate God's plan? That no sin can ever assail God's plan and defeat God's plan. And you declare to your troubling heart, I will not despair. God is not done with me. For the Bible tells me he who calls me is faithful. He will surely do it. And that be rooted into your heart as we walk this Christian path. Knowing that God will sanctify us and he will do so through the church. For you see, thirdly, we are sanctified mutually. Mutually. 
You see, God not only uses our labor to sanctify us, he also uses his people. And we, are, we, are, we sanctify one another. In fact, he goes on and gives us three commands there that we, we might be used in each other's life to sanctify each other. He says, first of all, uh, we, we should be praying for one another. Verse 25, he says, brothers, pray for us. So it, it seems to me in Paul's mind, if God is the one who sanctifies, then he should pray for God to sanctify. Paul, in fact, Paul's been praying throughout this letter. Right? Three times he's prayed. Chapter 1, he says, I'm praying for you continually. In chapter 3, he says, I'm praying that your love would abound. And here in chapter 5, he's praying that God would sanctify them completely. Verse 23 is a prayer. Do you recognize that? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He's praying to God. That's a prayer. And so he's continually praying for them, asking God to work in their lives. And then he gets to the end of his letter and he says, brothers, may I make this request of you? Will you please pray for me? Will you please pray for us? And I, I simply think that's amazing in light of the one who's asking for prayer. I mean, you, you do recognize Paul was a pretty gift, gifted guy, wasn't he? Right? It, it, many believe if Paul did not come to Christ, he would be considered one of antiquity's greatest thinkers along the lines of Plato. And he's just a man of immense intellect. And, but even beyond his intellect, what about his, the depth of his love for God's people? What about his fearlessness? in the face of suffering? What about his contentment in the face of want, his, his pervasive joy, his willingness to suffer, his incredible work ethic, the power that he had? He raised the dead even, and his preaching ministry, it seems wherever he went, people were converted, and churches were started, and off he went to another place. I, I dare say there's never been another Christian like the Apostle Paul. And it's very easy to think him kind of sitting up there in the tower and he's issuing his orders and his edict and you live this way and you go live this way and this is what you're supposed to do and, and you go that direction while he himself kind of rises above the chaos of life and the troubles that besiege us. And Paul says, oh no, don't believe that. Brothers, will you please pray for me? I need your prayers and this is not some clever way for Paul to make himself accessible. This is the genuine cry of his heart. Pray for me. Pray for me. For he too was aware of his sinfulness. He too knew his only hope was in God. And so he often asks, almost in all of his letters, please pray for me. And so we must pray for one another. We must pray for one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, within your community groups, you ought to be sharing your struggles that we might pray for one another, seek help in this process of sanctification. And if I may just make a, uh, apply this personally, uh, uh, the, the, your pastors here, desperately need your prayers. As Paul the Apostle asked for prayers, may I, as your pastor, and on behalf of Josh and Cody as well, ask you to pray for us, for I believe, um, and hopefully this doesn't sound too self-serving, but I believe there are pressures and temptations that are unique to those in the pastoral ministry. And we need your prayers. And when I hear you praying for me, I'll tell you, it gets me fired up to preach another sermon. And it gets me fired up to, to counsel another troubled soul. And it even gets me to open my, e my email, okay? Um, so please, uh, please pray for me. We need to pray for one another if we're to make progress. We must pray for one another. He also tells us to love one another, right? Look what he says there in verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So Paul's not there, and it seems he wants everyone to be greeted uh, in, in love on his behalf, and so some people think he's saying, hey, give everyone a kiss from me. 
In other places, like Romans and Corinthians, he urges his readers to go about and do the kissing. And that may be what he's doing here. Hey, you all should be giving each other this, this holy kiss. Now, we're not quite sure what it is. Uh, there's, there's different ideas. Some people think he's smacking one right on the lips, right? Uh, other people, is kissing the forehead, I've read, uh, kissing the cheek. I, uh, someone told me they would actually grab the beard and pull you in tight for a kiss. I think that's a terrible idea, okay? <laughs> But whatever they're doing, during worship service, they're greeting each other with this kiss. That was the custom of their day. And in fact, I I was researching the church history as I was pouring over this, and it actually, I found it very interesting, over the centuries, it got out of hand, right? Um, Tertullian, the church father, he would speak of his wife going around, uh, a wife going around kissing any one of the brothers, Right? And uh, evidently, uh, you know, this got slanderous. Clement of Alexandria, another second century church father, said, The shameless use of a kiss occasions foul suspicions and evil reports. And so evidently, everybody's walking around. These Christians, all they're doing is kissing. They're getting together and kissing each other. And what's going on there? There's all these suspicions going on. And so interestingly enough, you may not care about this at all, but by the third century, there's actually church councils that are forming to pass regulations on kissing. Okay? And I actually, I was, I was having a good old time reading these. So if, if you don't mind, I'll share a little bit with you. Maybe you do mind. I don't care. Um, with the... This is a third century document called the Constitution of the Apostles. Has not, the apostles weren't around in the third century, but this is what they called it. You might find this interesting. What, what was church like in the third century? Well, they say, let the younger women sit by themselves, if there be a place for them. But if there be not, let them stand behind the women. Uh, let those women which are married and have children be placed by themselves. But let the virgins and the widows and the elderly women sit before all the rest. And let a deacon be the disposer of the places, that everyone that comes in may go to his proper place and may not sit at the entrance. So you got this deacon who's, who's standing by the door, and he's saying, okay, you sit there, and you sit there, and you sit there, and he's making, no one, making sure no one sits in the back, right? And so they must not have been Baptists, right? And uh, because, no, you can't sit near the entrance. He's guarding the entrance. So maybe someone's going to make a bolt for it or something like that. So you got a deacon in charge of the sitting. And then in a like manner, let a deacon watch the people, that nobody may whisper nor slumber nor laugh, <laughs> nor nod, right? There's no nodding in agreement. Uh, uh, let others of them watch the multitude and keep them silent, right? And so you're all very fortunate we're not in the third century right now, right? Because you'd all be kicked out of here, right? There's no, 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 uh, no, no laughing, no sleeping. You got a deacon walking up and down the aisles, I don't know, making sure no one's nodding off. This is why I think there should be no laughing in church. I think it's totally inappropriate, Right? And then, well, read on, it says, let the deacon say to all, here it is, let the deacon say to all, salute one another with a holy kiss. And let the men give the men and the women, the women, the Lord's kiss. And so you got, a, you got another deacon, the deacon of kissing, okay? And, uh, and the deacon stands up and he says, okay, it's kissing time. And, um, and we're all going to start. Uh, evidently, deacons are really important in the third century and God bless deacons. I mentioned to you I was on uh, the island of Tana, and I, was, I actually preached the first sermon in this church when, uh, when they had their Bible in their own language. The very first sermon uh, was preached with their Bible, and it was just like our service, except they had a deacon in charge of dog caning. 
Um, and so uh, the dogs would come into the church service, and the, there we'd have a deacon with a sugar cane, and he would get up, and he would beat that dog, and the dog would yelp and run out of there. And so it's very difficult to preach when a dog is yelping every three minutes. But um, the deacons were, have always been important, evidently. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, <laughs> the point is... Uh, <laughs> The point is that the church is to be warm and encouraging, isn't it? The church is to be, we got to get beyond, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? You're good, okay, we're all good, good. I'm glad everybody's good. Okay, let's get on with this, right? There's got to be something different when the people gather that you don't get in the office. There's got to be something different when you gather that, that, that you, you don't get in the neighborhood. Something that expresses warmth and togetherness. And I think that's probably different with different people, okay? And some, some people are a little more affectionate than others. Some people will hug anything that stands still, all right? Um, it's just in God's providence, evidently, that Ilhami is here. Um, uh, uh, I'm, uh, half of us have already been kissed by Ilhami, okay? okay? So some people are still doing the kissing thing. Whatever it is, it can't be cold and, inform- and, and, and formal. It needs to be warmth and loving. I, I had lunch uh, this week uh, with a local pastor. Uh, first time I met him. And uh, his church is full, full of fighting and arguing and secret meetings. In other words, not a lot of kissing going on. right? And there's not a lot of sanctification going on in that church either. As they turn on each other. So Paul says, no, you greet one another. It's a place of greeting. It's a place of affection. It's a place where you feel encouraged and supported. You feel like I'm part of these people. Notice he says, greet all uh, the brothers, not just some, everyone, that none are left out. And that there's this encouragement as God uses the church to sanctify one us. Well, thirdly, the third way we sanctify each other mutually is growing with one another. I find verse 27 fascinating when Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read before all the brothers, led to all the brothers. Uh, it's not surprising that Paul asked his letter, his letter to be read, but I, I think it's very fascinating the oath he puts them under. I put you under oath before the Lord, he says. It's pretty serious. Well, why is Paul so strident here? Well, it seems to me that Paul knows his words carry divine authority. And therefore, they must be considered, they must be obeyed. Paul would later write in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that the foundation of the church is set by the apostles, and for which he is one. And so this is not a casual letter, letter that, that, you, that you read and throw out. This is not a casual letter that some people get and no one else gets. This, this is to be read in the church services. In fact, you notice there's no instruction to test his word. We saw last week there to test prophecies, right? To discern them, uh, to weigh their message. But Paul says, no, when, when, when it comes to my message, you heed everything I wrote. We know at this time the Old Testament is already being read in the church service. This was a practice they would borrow from the synagogue. And now Paul says, I want you to read my letter alongside the Old Testament. You would do the same in the, uh, the book of Colossians. And the implication is clear, that the apostolic documents at this very early day in the church are, are to be regarded in the same way as the Old Testament scripture itself. I remind you now for the last time, I think, that 1 Thessalonians is the second oldest New Testament book we have. All, the only other book we have is Galatians at this point. And so very, 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 very early, he sees the authority of his own writing. 
In fact, the, uh, many people point to this verse and others like them as the origin for the, for the practice when the church gathers to have both the Old Testament and the New Testament read in Scripture. This is why Hamilton Baptist Church does this almost every Sunday. It's not something we came up with. Right? We read from the Old Testament. We read from the New Testament. It's not our idea. It's what the church has been doing from the very birth of the New Covenant Church. In fact, it's commanded to us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 12. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why? Well, because the Word of God sanctifies. Right? And you must, therefore, give the church the Word of God. The church has not always done this. In fact, it is this very verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, that John Calvin would cite in condemning the the 16th century practice of the Roman Catholic Church to withhold the scripture from the people, um, killing those who would translate the Bible into their own language, speaking only in Latin, a language even the priest did not understand at this point. But that, I'm afraid that wasn't simply just an ancient error. It happens today throughout this land that the people of God are gathering and the word of God is withheld from them. And they don't do it because they think the people are too ignorant to understand the Bible like the Roman Catholic Church did in the 1600s. They withhold the word because they, they think it's too boring for the people, right? And we need to gather the people. We need to fill the space, and we need to, we need to put them together, and we need to entertain them. We, want, we, wanna, we, need, to, we need to razzmatazz them, and this needs to be exciting and enthusiastic, and people certainly don't want anybody to stand up and just read to us from Scripture, and many, many in the church growth movement today have come to that conclusion. I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go with Jesus on this one. Who said, or prayed rather, in John 17 and verse 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Well, lastly, you see Paul will conclude his letter there in verse 25, 28 as he um, longs for us to be or tells us that we'll be sanctified graciously, graciously. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, be with you. If you remember, uh, some months ago we began this letter, when Paul began, the grace to you and peace, he said, there in chapter 1, verse 2. Now he ends praying to the God of peace, there in verse 23, and then praying for grace here in verse 28. Grace is the heart of the gospel. God did not need to save you, Christian. You did not make it difficult for God to say no to you. You made it very easy. And yet you have received grace. He's offered you grace. Grace through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross to pay the debt that we have accumulated for all of our sin. To bear the wrath of God for us who have turned on God and then being raised from the dead. And now the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Totally and completely by grace. As the hymn writer put it, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. And so my prayer along with Paul's, is that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with you. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that none here would leave rejecting the offer of grace. He offers it to you right now, even as I speak to you. 
says, I'll give you grace, I'll give you mercy, I'll forgive you, I'll begin a good work in you, I'll justify you. I will begin my sanctifying work and bring you to completion. Not if you get your life right, not if you earn your way, not if you do this or that, simply if you bow your knee in faith to me and my son, declaring him to be your Savior and Lord. It's that grace by which we enter into the Christian life. But as one pastor put it, 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 grace is not only the pardon that passes over our badness, it is also the power that produces our goodness. See, we just didn't get grace when we started this deal. We continue to get grace, and it's the grace of God that will empower our obedience. Just as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen carefully, by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace in me was not in vain, because I, but I worked harder than all of them. Nevertheless, it was not I. It was the grace of God that was with me. Right? I'm working, I'm laboring, I'm pushing forward. But even in that effort, it's God's very grace that is empowering me. God's very grace that is pushing me. God's very grace that is sanctifying me. And even now, he exhorts them to sanctification. He returns once again to where he began. He commends to them the very grace of God. If you're going to walk this path of obedience, you need to do it by grace. It was the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, who once asked the question, if God is going to sanctify us completely, why does he have us continue to struggle this weary process through this life in order to overcome sin? Right? Why doesn't God just perfect us the moment we put our faith in him? Right? You trust in Jesus, whammo, sanctified completely. Why has he decreed that, that the sin in our hearts is only overcome through years of struggle and slow growth towards godliness? Why? The process. Well, I wonder if Paul's helping answer that question as he ends this letter. I wonder if God leads us to struggle through our sin so that we might learn to rely upon him. We might learn to rely namely upon his grace, that we might have a lifelong personal encounter with grace so that, as we, that we learn to be holy and at the same time we learn how gracious God is to poor sinners whom he has saved as he works in us. And so may I echo the words of Apostle Paul as we end this morning. May the Lord of God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole body and spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. We're thankful, Father, that you continue to work in our lives and that you will form us into the image of Jesus. Let that be our great heart's desire, the longing of our soul, the devotion of our wills, the dedication of our minds, that we might pursue holiness by obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus, and knowing that even in that obedience, your power, your grace is working within us. And so sanctify us, we pray. And for those here, Father, who do not know you, who are not in Christ, We pray that you would justify them, that you, in grace and mercy, would declare them not guilty as you place faith in their hearts, that they might turn from their own work and trust in the work of Jesus for their salvation. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.